And we, we made this point earlier, but I want to read this excerpt because this really mm. caught my eye. Is that I'll read the excerpt first. So he says, quote, in distinct contrast to the limited warfare of the ancient regime, the ancient regime, then mm. the new era of democratic Republican warfare, which began with the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, which is further exhibited during the 19th century by the American War of Southern Independence, and which reaches its apex during the 20th century with World War I and World War II and continues to the present is the era of total war. Mm. All, I mean, <laughs> that entire era of total war he just described was facilitated by fiat currency. Mm. And this really caught my eye because, again, when we're talking about blurring the lines between public and private property or violating private property rights. Like that's all mm. fiat currency inflation is like mm. full stop. It doesn't do anything mm. else except violate the property rights of those depending on it to hold value, mm -hmm. uh, allocating those rights to those who can print the money effectively. So mm. it's like democracy itself has distorted this relationship, but fiat currency is just like, gasoline on the fire hmm. Hmm. and that that's something that uh tends to happen more in democracies i think yeah. although yeah to be fair like world war one there were monarchies that that were inflating away and yeah usually uh that that was a tool that they felt like they needed to use because the other side was using it and that, yeah. that was the only way they can really keep up uh, but get, getting back to this earlier point um about you know, total war, um, you know, it, it, it is enabled largely by um, some sort of like ideological reason, right, mm -hmm. uh, which is more endemic to democracies and fiat money, which it, which does tend to happen more in democracies. But I, 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 I'm, I think uh, the God thing definitely is there too. Like there's mm -hmm. a reason I think he chose the French revolution because that was the first sort of like atheist regime. Mm -hmm. And we saw the reign of terror, like just beheadings left mm -hmm. and right um, and killing of all sorts of people. Um, and uh, what, what a lot of these have in common, um, you know, aside from the U S civil war um, and, you know, there is a lot of people that think uh, Abraham Lincoln was actually more of a deist or, or, or theist than, uh, than, than a Christian say, mm -hmm. um, is this idea that you, you remove like a higher power from the equation and mm -hmm. you, you get, you know, sort of like this ideology as your higher power that that becomes the all-consuming thing I and mean, like the french revolution was absolutely crazy right like they they uh you know they changed the names of the months uh you know they they tried to remove like absolutely everything monarchical mm -hmm. uh you know they they had 10-day weeks for a while there mm -hmm. and like just they they changed up everything that they could think of because they they want they were rejecting everything that came from the past um and obviously it wasn't very lindy like them trying to do mm -hmm. that and that 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 ended up uh you know like with all sorts of unforeseen problems and part of why the french revolution just lasted so long and it was so chaotic um but you know world war one world war two you know they they had an element of um ideology and uh a rejection of god in it um particularly world war ii because you know that that was where you had an atheist uh stalin um 
with a very pagan, I would say more Nietzschean, uh, you know, uh, Hitler, you know, like mm-hmm. his yeah. whole thing was about force of will and, and, and things like that. Um, you know, that they were the main players in, in this whole mm-hmm. drama. Um, and they, they ended up like just, you know, killing enormous amounts of people as a result. Mm-hmm. And that, that total war, you know, I, I agree. Democracy definitely uh, fuels it because of the ideological nature. Um, and of course, uh, fiat money definitely fuels it. But there's also the, a third part of this trinity, and I, I think that's the rejection of God. I would call this like the evil trinity of factors that sort of lead to uh, this complete war that, yeah, uh, you know, you know, that that's yeah. pretty terrible. <laughs> Is that then, I mean, this seems like kind of a post-enlightenment apex type of mm-hmm. thing, right? Where we've, mm-hmm. we really started to, you know, start the scientific revolution through that process and Mm. that has kind of diverged a lot of people's belief systems or identity from god and Mm -hmm. towards something much more rational you know like i don't want to say rational let's just say atheist logical Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um is there a you know is this just something we have to go through to bring that back to kind of like rediscover the the benefits of ancient wisdom mm. in some way or is, are we just going to kind of in your opinion hopelessly keep careening away in this this uh away from god in the scientific revolution yeah well that i i'll, I'll answer a more specific question first with regard to war mm-hmm. uh, so you know are we going to prevent some of these wars i i think the point at which uh you know war kind of stops or there there are two sort of like steady states either no one has happened has weapons or everyone has weapons mm-hmm. so yeah in a situation you're, you're you have there's a reason you haven't seen war between major powers in a while because mm-hmm. they all have they nuclear weapons and yeah. and like th- this is like guns times a million right because mm-hmm. you you just press a button bam you can you can destroy entire cities and so on yeah. um so wars right now are mostly waged between either two non-nuclear powers or a nuclear power versus a non-nuclear power, right? At least yeah. one of the parties has to be that way. Um, and total war isn't, you know, like in a sense that kind of happened in Iraq, uh, although like we completely screwed up and, you know, did get Saddam out of power, but there was never, ever going to be any sort of negotiated settlement. And that's... Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a negotiated peace is just like hasn't happened right mm-hmm. in, in like a hundred years like you don't stop a war because uh, like unless you're like non-nuclear powers or something like that uh like or you have some sort of dictatorship you don't ever you, you don't have uh you know a negotiated settle a negotiated peace anymore it's you know the regime has to be toppled it has to be destroyed or something and this is sort of uh, the effect of total war is that 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 needs to happen in order for war to end. So mm. the the stakes are still fairly high. Uh, but, you know, like the, the thing about, um, uh, you know, the, the question that you're asking is, you know, is it possible for us to sort of like go back toward, towards that because we're seeing how terrible it is? I don't think it's gotten bad enough yet, honestly. Mm. Like, 
you know, we're, we're, you know, happily sitting at home, even though we're locked in our homes, many of us, you know, we can, we can still go play video games on the computer and, mm. you know, uh, shit post on Twitter or something, mm. you know, like we, you, you can, it, it, it doesn't hurt enough uh, where it's, you know, that sort of thing is going to actually help. Um, I, I, I think there's sort of like a quiet desperation in a lot of mm. people's lives. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that is ultimately what, uh, what drives people towards, you know, embracing God again and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there, there's epidemic levels of, uh, uh, of depression and, uh, and suicidal thoughts and suicide mm -hmm. and, and things like that. But, you know, you know, that I think is, is more the thing, but the actual practical consequences of war are largely abstracted away. Um, they're mostly fought by professional fighters. Um, cons conscription hasn't really happened since uh vietnam and mm -hmm. uh you know that 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 left a very traumatic sort of scar at least in the american psyche mm -hmm. uh, i'm sure conscription goes on in other places around the world uh but wars are somewhat limited due to nuclear weapons it might be one of the most like it, it kind of has brought peace in many ways and yeah. encouraged more trade like people tend to like demonize nuclear weapons but because it's so powerful right, right. it's it sort of equalized things a lot there's a reason we're not invading north korea or doing anything like that it's right. because they have nuclear weapons yeah. and in that way it's kind of like guns right because guns made it so that a professionally trained soldier and you are you know not that far apart right like yeah. it, it, symmetry it, it, it of even violence things out kind of thing. and you know swords did the same thing right like yeah. it used to be that people that could punch harder uh could like beat up a lot more people but you know you have swords now it's a lot more even yeah. you know guns did the same thing nuclear weapons have done the same thing sort of at a macro level yeah. um so in that sense it's it's brought about peace uh and i think that's something that like hapa doesn't get into but that said it does make it a lot more fragile because if you do get into a nuclear war, now mm. everything is wiped out. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if it's better or worse, but I, I will say that it has sort of like prolonged the period of peace, especially in the Western world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and not I'm, I'm not talking about the Middle East or South America or you know, um, you know, Central Asia or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but but you know, it it it, it has kind of made uh made things fairly peaceful and, and encouraged trade in that way so you know give it up for nuclear weapons i guess <laughs> not uh <laughs> not a direction i thought we would go today but that does make a lot of sense and yeah it comes down to symmetry right when mm. um something sailor said to me a long time ago he goes everyone in miami beach is very polite to one another because the gun laws mm. are very laxed he's mm. like so you know people just operate under the presumption that everyone's armed so therefore people are very mm. polite you know there's a lot of, a lot of symmetry <laughs> there um that makes sense to me how do you i mean i know this is a big big question we could spend days on it but how do you think bitcoin plays into all of this i mean mm. do you think it seems like larger institutions are being more or less economically forced to adopt bitcoin you know i don't want to say forced mm -hmm. it's not actually coerced but they're just in pursuit of their own self-interest to preserve wealth mm -hmm. over time 
you end up having to seriously evaluate and ultimately adopt Bitcoin in the opinion of most Bitcoiners, including myself. Presumably that would eventually happen at kind of the geopolitical scale. Um, do you think this becomes a significant deterrent to warfare? I mean, we know it would reduce their, the nation state's ability to finance warfare through inflation. Mm -hmm. Do you think mm -hmm. there are other uh, implications of that? Well, that that's a big one, though. Like the, uh, the yeah. that that would be the main thing is the is the fiat money's ability to finance war. Um, so the past, you know, um, I guess forty two years of our adventures in the Middle East, ever since uh, you know the um, the embassy storming in Iran up until you know the recent stuff with Afghanistan like the you know I, I had Scott Horton on my podcast and we talked about like all the things that went wrong and all the stupidity of the U.S. foreign policy that led from one thing to the other like the Iran-Iraq war happened because of uh, we were backing Saddam because we were pissed off at Iran for taking our hostages and that led to you know, Iraq getting in debt and that led to them, um, you know, going and invading Kuwait and that led to us invading Iraq and that led to us establishing uh, air, air bases in Saudi Arabia to enforce no fly zones in Iraq. And that mm -hmm. led to Osama bin Laden getting pissed at us because we had, uh, you know, like U.S. Uh, air bases in a holy peninsula, according to his religion. And that led to him you know, uh, doing 9-11 and that, you know, that that led to us invading Afghanistan, that led wow. to us invading Iraq. And I mean, like, it's all connected, right? It, yeah. it, it's all like sort of like one disaster after another. And it, it's where we're involved in like six different wars right now, including Yemen and Syria and Lebanon and all the uh, all, all these all these places and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, obviously. Um, and all, all of that is all related, right? Like, and yeah. it, it was like just you know, unintended consequence after unintended consequence. Um, and a large part of that is fueled by fiat money. And it's uh, it's uh, a lot of that, uh, if you read his book enough already, it, it's, it's about, um, you know, like keeping the petrodollar as well and, uh, you know, satisfying the Saudis who are a big sort of like supporter of the petrodollar and if mm -hmm. we didn't have their support I and mean, th this is why we're in yemen right like because right. they're like hey we want to invade yemen and uh you're gonna help us out and it's like uh, okay because <laughs> you know we uh, like they're they're against iran because one's uh, they're they're shiite shiite and uh you know uh or uh, iran is shiite and uh you know saudi arabia is sunni and you know, they were pissed at us for like essentially supporting Iran by taking over Iraq and making them that a sphere of influence. So this was our concession to them, something like that. So and what, like, one, one question. So we need mm -hmm. Saudi support for the petrodollar so we can keep pricing mm -hmm. oil contracts in dollars. Is that right? Yeah, well, to keep the dollar as a world reserve currency. So, I, I mean, there there are different opinions on this, but I think it's it's at the backbone of why the dollar is the world reserve currency mm -hmm. is of course uh, is the fact that you need it in order to trade for oil. And yeah. um, if if Saudi Arabia started selling oil for euros or something like that, I think it would um, you know it would change the international dynamics very significantly. Right, and it would take like twenty or thirty years, but I think. You know, whatever they priced it in would uh, compete with the dollar as global reserve currency. Right. That that is like outside of a Bitcoin world. Now, what does Bitcoin yeah. do? 
Well, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, you know, takes out a lot of this war stuff. Uh, you know, a, a lot, you you can't fund a trillion dollar Iraq war, um, mm. you know, just out of thin air, like like we did. Um, and you would have to explicitly tax because uh, you still have to pay soldiers. You have to pay for weapons. You have to pay for all that stuff. I suspect that the fir- like the lower hanging fruit is probably making the military a lot more efficient. Mm. So if you study like military uh, spending, defense spending and stuff like that, they spend so much money on weapons that don't work, which is like, are you serious? Like we spent how many millions of dollars on like this weapon system that doesn't do anything or whatever. And it's like, uh, you know, they, they try it, it doesn't work, or there's like a very easy way to get out of it or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they spend so much money on just crap like that, 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 you know, they could probably take out and, you know, that would be a large, uh, you know, it, this is essentially funding defense contractors, by the right, way. Right, right. Um, and it, it, they're, they're a big part of like the, you know, military industrial complex, but, you know, drawing down the military in, industrial complex will probably get them a lot more savings and maybe they wage war, uh, maybe a little bit more efficiently mm-hmm. and um, still pay soldiers and pay for, you know, gas for tanks and things like that. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, all, all the stuff that they do just through tax revenue. Um, but, you know, like longer term, I think ultimately what, what it does is it makes, uh, it makes the apparatus of government, uh, the cost of defense a lot clearer because, uh, you know, it's, uh, largely abstracted away from us through inflation. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I saw a budget once about, uh, you know, like the U.S. budget and you look at all the line items and you have defense spending, which comes in at like 30 or 40 percent of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of spending. But there's a lot of other stuff like veteran uh, affairs and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, other things which are related to defense, but aren't counted as part of defense spending. And if you add up all that, that ends up being like 50%, right? Like the other, like 40, another 45% is entitlement. So really like you take out those two things and, you know, you, you have a lot more money. It's just, you know, the, the way that the government spends money is just, uh, just insanely inefficient. Uh, so I think Bitcoin sort of like pops a pin a little bit because, you know, you're you're not going to be able to inflate as much. I think uh, central banks start realizing that, uh, well, the, there are two scenarios. It, it goes into hyperinflation and then yeah. you know, they, they adopt the Bitcoin standard or their central banks start becoming a lot more tight with their monetary policy. Right. And that uh, that that controls budgets as well, because you can't sell treasuries to if there's no lender of last resort. So. Um, yeah, there, there's a couple ways. Either way, I think what you end up with is a lesser, you shrink the military industrial complex. Yeah. And that means less war, at least in the US. Um, you know, globally, uh, you know, hopefully what, what, what Bitcoin does is, you know, instead of ideological wars, maybe you have a certain economic wars, like, um, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. Russia's actions with Crimea were something like that. It, mm-hmm. it was economic. I, I think there's a large oil field there and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it, it, it was important to uh, keep them there. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, those, those kinds of wars, at least I can understand that they tend to be fairly limited. And, you know, th- those are 
uh, kind of what we have because of nuclear weapons, <laughs> uh, yeah. although wars of ideology still do happen. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think war ever really goes away, but it does mm -hmm. change its nature. And, um, you know, maybe with clear property boundaries uh, going forward, uh, although, you know, I, I don't know, like I, I, I am in favor of smaller states and I, I think they are kind of inevitable once the dollar collapses. So yeah. in that way, um, you might have smaller skirmishes, but they would be done uh in a limited way because it's not going to be popular in any place where you're having war because people would right. much rather have prosperity yeah yeah okay that's interesting so much smaller maybe more frequent local skirmishes instead of world war one world war two type dynamic yeah 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 that makes sense um so let me ask you maybe a, a slightly more uh metaphysical type question related to the same topic mm -hmm. is it possible that bitcoin because a lot of what we've talked about today is this lack of clarity with property is leading to all mm -hmm. of these distorted outcomes you know this mm -hmm. destruction of uh private law discovery the ship shift towards public uh what do you call it positive civil law um mm -hmm. more warfare more ideological possession all of these negative consequences seem to be largely derived from the lack of clarity related to property basically mm, so mm. do you think it's possible that bitcoin by clarifying not only the boundaries of private property because it's very clear with bitcoin right you either have mm -hmm. the keys or you don't there's no public mm -hmm. property bs associated with it mm -hmm. but perhaps also clarifying the importance of property like even this discussion mm. we're having today I think it's sort of mm. reinvigorated this um, discussion about, you know, you could say the founding principles of the U.S. or it even goes back further mm -hmm. than that into the Magna Carta. Mm -hmm. They talked about mm -hmm. the inviolability of property, things like this. Is it possible that Bitcoin, by clarifying the importance and boundaries of properties, could dispel our susceptibility to these ideologies that have taken us down paths mm. of, of self-deception? I, I certainly hope so. Um, and it, it's strange because, uh, you know, we, we think ourselves as um, extremely vulnerable to propaganda to, uh, you know, because we, we've been subjected to it for so long. But I, I mean, even 150 years ago, um, you know, it was fairly clear to everybody that like money printed out of nothing was you know, violation of property rights. It's mm -hmm. only because we've grown up in public school and been taught certain things that we don't recognize them as such. Mm -hmm. um, so property rights, I think, are very core to the human experience. And it, it's something that we naturally kind of know. It's that we've unlearned it because of school, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, uh, and to some degree, I think we all instinctively know it, despite, you know, whatever communists mm -hmm. even will say, like, you steal a chicken from a communist, they're still going to get angry, right? right like right. that's that's how it is. Um, so I, I I suspect that uh, this you know Bitcoin does sort of give cleaner edges to property and does sort of like bring property back and maybe even enhances property because it's metaphysical property. Mm -hmm. it, it's it doesn't have a physical form or location, so it is very difficult to confiscate, and it's even clearer with Bitcoin what you own versus uh, something like gold, where if you're storing at a gold depository, who, who actually owns a gold bar, 
well, you're actually loaning it to them in exchange mm-hmm. uh, for a claim or something like it, it, get, it gets all complicated and you get much clearer boundaries because of, uh, you know, it's digital nature. The, the clarity is, you know, off the charts. It's uh, it, mm-hmm. it's even clearer than, you know, uh, you know, monarchy versus democracy or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's it, the, the, the boundaries are, are much, much better there. Um, now, does that eliminate public property? I, I don't know. Um, I, I think people like the idea of public property because it's, in a sense, their substitute for actual community. Um, mm-hmm. Like most people aren't in many communities today. Um, and if they are, it's like just online or something like that or Facebook. And that's just fake community, right? That's a real mm-hmm. community. Right. Um, and But we're, we're wired for a community. We're wired for a small group, uh, a village, something like that. And there's Dunbar's number, I think, which is like 158 or something like that. The maximum yeah. number of people that you can know in a group before you start forgetting their names and stuff like that. Um, that's that's kind of how we're wired. So if, we, if we're not in a community like that, there is a search for something else. Um, mm-hmm. And that that I, I think ultimately uh, leads to uh, some of this desire for democracy or mm-hmm. uh, or something uh, you know bigger than yourself. That um, you know through that that's sort of like uh, the security hole through which a lot of these ideology uh, ideologies yeah, yeah. and evil things come through. Yeah, especially the yeah yeah. Go ahead. So you're you're back to the loss of religion in a way, right? People trying to fill yeah, that void yeah. with public property or something mm-hmm. else. Yeah, it, it's a psychological thing in a sense. Yeah. Like they, there's uh, there's something missing in their life, and it is community or society or yeah. people that you're uh, you're a part of. Um, and if you don't have that, you're going to look for it in something like, um, you know, my country or my party or mm-hmm. my, you know, some 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 sense of belonging. And I, I, I mean, to be fair, I think, uh, you know, part of the Bitcoin community is like that, right? Like it's yeah. uh, it's it's sort of LARPing on uh, on on what a real community should be, which is usually local and, you know, yeah. going up in a village or something like that. And. Yeah, there, there's a disconnect between um, how we live and how we're wired. So that's, um, you know, the hole through which public property, this anathema comes through. Yeah, that's a great point. I, um, it seems to me almost like to your point, we're wired with these limitations like the Dunbar number. Mm-hmm. But the very thing that makes human beings the dominant species in the world, as Harari pointed out in Sapiens, is that we can cooperate Mm -hmm. flexibly in large numbers. Mm -hmm. And we do that through the use of symbols, right? Mm -hmm. I think he calls them the imagined orders, like nation states, Mm -hmm. you know, civil liberties, et cetera, et cetera. So -hmm. it's like we, to be human, we need some symbol, like to coordinate Mm -hmm. ourselves beneath Right. The Dunbar number is not enough. There, there needs to be some higher order symbolic or moral system that we organize ourselves within. And, you know, I guess historically, you know, that was religion. And mm-hmm. now we've kind of had these experiments recently where it's, oh, let's try communism or let's try democracy. Um, mm-hmm. These different ideologies that have tried to um, act as a substitute, but we can't not have it, right? There has to be some organizing mm-hmm. principle that's mm-hmm. superordinate to the Dunbar number. Mm. Yeah, and I think libertarians would say natural law is a good 
substance, uh, yeah. you know, like a natural, like it's, it's not exactly religion, um, but it's something that at least people can agree to and say, okay, these rights exist. And yeah. that, that, that's the organizing principle that you protect the in, protect individual liberty rather than sort of collective um, yeah. something or other. Right. Um, and that that's the organizing principle, I think works a lot better, at least from an a priori perspective, because if you are catering to the individual, then they are naturally going to do certain things that, you know, uh, you know, uh, that that help build civilization as opposed yeah. to sort of like trying to subject other people to the will of the state, which is more or less where you end up if, uh, you know, going down that path from earlier, like, you know, uh, you, you, you're you a sovereign individual, then you have representatives to protect your rights to, you know, yes. you have, uh, you know, you want to do the most good for most people. And then, you know, you're, you're a slave to the state, right? Like the, the, those are by steps kind of where you end up. Uh, so yeah, having uh, an organizing principle, I think is definitely necessary and natural rights seem like a pretty good option. Um, and that's kind of what the U.S. was originally. From, yeah, exactly. exactly. Unfortunate that it, it's no longer. Yeah, yeah. To your the point you said earlier too that we've had these ideals for a long time, but the implementation mm. has always failed. Right? They've been mm. scribbled down on a piece of paper that we could adhere to or not. Um, something like the Constitution or Magna Carta. Um, that's really interesting. Do you think then that this? perhaps explains why Bitcoin kind of generates its own religious like fervor and that people are just finding <laughs> this as a larger symbol to organize yeah. themselves within. Yeah. I, I, um, so Bitcoin is a symbol of, uh, of sort of like verifying, not trusting, uh, sort of like um, self sovereignty in some ways, mm -hmm. especially financially. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I don't know if there's necessarily like uh oh I get I guess there is kind of an ideology there with like Bitcoin maximalism or something to that effect um that you can kind of describe and it's kind um, of natural you know, law, like, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of. Mm. It, it's uh yeah, it, it's you know, don't steal from people, right? Like which yeah. is what all coins do and and so on. Um but yeah, there 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 is something to that. Uh and you know, I, I, I don't think we've uh, studied this enough uh, to to really have or I at least I haven't studied it enough to really make uh, a definitive statement on whether or not this is ultimately where it's going to end up. Mm -hmm. um, I do think, though, that, uh, you know, Bitcoin definitely affects a lot of aspects that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Bitcoiners like you know, go work out a lot more often yeah, right? and right. have more kids and, Eating you know, healthy, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe even exploring religion and things like that. Like mm -hmm. there, there's, there's things that Bitcoiners do that other people don't. And there, there is some sort of organizing principle that's there, uh, that I'm not, I, I guess the closest thing to it would be verify don't trust. Yeah. Um, and it, it is kind of new in the sense that mo most people are very used to trusting and it, it is kind of counterintuitive for people to have to go verify something on their own. Yeah. Uh, but that is sort of like the organizing principle around why like 
people start eating like meat yeah. or uh, or things like that because they they realize okay if I actually verify all of the studies that say cholesterol is bad for you I find out that it's a lot of BS yeah. or you know like the uh, you know that lockdowns are actually slowing down the spread of COVID I found that find out that it's BS or something like right. that verifying on your own is a very different thing than trusting um, and there there does seem to be maybe that principle at work here and then just to tie this back to democracy, the guy that failed, clearly Bitcoin has mm. a influence on lowering your time preference. Mm. Do you think that it, it could be, I mean, maybe not the symbol we organize ourselves under, but mm. just a contributor to the, to the civil civilizing force that is a lower time preference? Yeah. So I would say that lower time preference is, uh, you know, what, Christians call prudence. It's a virtue. Mm. And virtue comes out of aligning your behavior with your beliefs. Um, and the the belief there is that, you know, long term, I, I am going to um, prosper by doing, uh, you know, like planning for the future and giving up things now. Um, and that uh, that that alignment um, takes some amount of effort to do, um, you know, like a lot of people, for example, have trouble losing weight, even though they know that losing weight would be a good thing for them and that it would it, mm. it would help them physically and many, many other things. Um, but, you know, the act of vir the virtue itself is, uh, you know, aligning your actions with your beliefs and making sure that you feel good when you're doing the right thing instead of feeling bad. Um, mm -hmm. So that that's, that's what I would uh, call low time preference behavior. It's uh, ultimately a virtue and it's, it's behavior based. Um, the belief under it is that sort of like symbol or, or whatever. Yeah. And it, uh, and, you know, ver for whatever reason, verifying not trusting does lead to this, uh, this virtue of, uh, you know, you know, saving up stuff for tomorrow and, and things like that. Um, and Bitcoin obviously has this store of value property and yeah. this enormous return on saving that you, we, we haven't had, uh, which does sort of do that. But it's a virtue that you get as a result of, uh, uh, of Bitcoin and not necessarily uh, like you're attracted to Bitcoin because you have that virtue. Does that make sense? Right. It's, yeah, it's, no, it's, that, it it's the effect, not the cause. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like Bitcoin might be the most practical implementation we've had for inspiring prudence in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, um, or the the best it's it's got an obvious payoff to prudence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas most, uh, at least in the fiat system, you often don't have that payoff, right? Like right. for character and things like that, I think I, I think prudence is still good, even yeah. if you're saving dollars, right? Like because right. you're you're uh, you're learning to sort of deny yourself and things like that, which yeah. is a necessary part of being an adult. Um, but uh, you know, like the payoff on on holding dollars is or saving dollars is yeah. terrible. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 so. Practically speaking, the rewards aren't as great as the sacrifice you're making. Right. So there's a tendency not to do that. Whereas with Bitcoin, the rewards are enormous and yeah. the sacrifice isn't nearly as much as right. the reward that you're going to get. So that 
that I think does inspire virtue. And, and that's a good thing that like when, whenever there's more virtue, you're going to get more civilization built, better people, more yeah. character, just all, yeah. all, all sorts of good things. That's really fascinating. Just this connection again, like the clarity of property, precision of property mm-hmm. and the inspiration of virtue. That's um, mm-hmm. really a um, positive way to look at Bitcoin. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yen Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Let's jump back in here and maybe it would make sense now to take a look at a bit of the 20th century and how some of this actually played out. Um, so we talked about World War One and World War II being kind of the apex of the warmongering that a democratic state causes. Um, mm. What what happened in World War One and World mm-hmm. War Two? Like, it, I think the author goes into some of this uh, change mm-hmm. in governance systems around the world. Um, where where, sh- where should we chart our path here? Yeah, so I, I I think basically what uh, Hoppe says is uh, you know all of especially post World War One all of the monarchies essentially disappeared they they went and established democratic republics universal suffrage parliamentary you know legislatures and and things like that uh, for almost all of them. Um, and, you know, the, the few monarchies that remained were symbolic in nature. So you, you had, you know, the you know, queen in England and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, so that I think is, uh, is reasonable, right? Like uh, that, that, that happened in large part because of Woodrow Wilson, who made it an explicit goal to make the world safe for democracy. And because his influence sort of uh, you know the you know his decision essentially to bring the U.S. into World War One ended up winning the war for the Allies. Um, he did get to set a lot of the terms, um, and you know, the, like France, uh, you know, post French Revolution was you know headed towards a democracy direction anyway, um, with many false starts and so on, mm-hmm. uh, and but like all all of the losers uh, basically. It was a total war, so they they lost everything, and mm. you know the the victors could essentially impose whatever, and that's what they did. They they um, Austria, uh, you know Germany, and then the Austro-Hungarian Empire was like seven different states after that, right? It mm. turned into Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, um, Yugoslavia, and several others. But mm. it, it became 
uh, you know, like all of them essentially became quote unquote democracies. Um, what's what's interesting about that is that that didn't really stop the total war. Uh, and th this was sort of like Woodrow Wilson's thing is that if we make the world safe for democracy, we could have this thing called the League of Nations and this would be the last war we ever fought. Um, actually ended up the opposite. We, mm -hmm. we, had a, we, mm -hmm. we had World War II, which was an outgrowth of World War I, largely due to reparation payments and so on that, that were required. Um, and of course, Russia was absolutely crazy um, and all the stuff that they did to their people. And Stalin had some territorial ambitions, so he took advantage of, uh, you know, uh, the things that were going on. So World War II ended up being an even more devastating war than World War I. Um, and once again, because, you know, Roosevelt uh, came into the war, uh, I mean, the American public at that time was like extremely against the war, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the, there's this sense that it, it was, uh, you know, the American public would support it and everything else. Actually, the American public was, pretty angry at the allies at the time, which were Great Britain, uh, you know, to some degree, Russia and, uh, and uh, you know, they basically Great Britain had uh, not paid back the debts from World War One, and neither mm -hmm. did Russia. So that, that was a big sore point, especially under, uh, you know, what was then a gold standard, uh, mm -hmm. at least in the United States. That, that was a big deal, right? Like, it's like, okay, they didn't, they squelched on their debts. And they never paid it back. At, at least Great Britain did pay back the debts for World War II, which I think mm -hmm. the last payment was in 2006. Uh, Russia mm -hmm. never paid back uh, debts for World War II either. I think it, it got like written off at like 1% or 2%, two cents on the dollar, something like that. Wow. But but all, all, all of that meant that Roosevelt had to, you know, really work. And this was like a big use of propaganda in order to, uh, basically bring the U.S. into this war. And, uh, you know, some of that persists to the, today. We, we tend to think of Hitler as the worst possible imaginable evil. I would argue that Stalin was worse, um, mm. but not a lot of people sort of think that way because, of course, Stalin was our ally in World War II. Uh, but after post-World War II, because of Roosevelt's influence and uh, his ability essentially to... Um, you know, bring in uh, the winning part of the war meant that you know he got to dictate at least some of the terms for Western Europe, at least. Um, mm -hmm. Eastern Europe uh, became pretty much all communist, um, but Western Europe, uh, you know, stayed, you know, all democracies. Uh, and that's, um, that led to kind of what we're seeing today uh, and what I think we're going to talk next about, which is the welfare state, which, <laughs> which, you know, has uh, been a feature of democracies. Uh, and a large part of that, of course, is the fact that, you know, everyone gets to vote. And, uh, you know, this is kind of what the founding fathers of the United States were kind of really worried about. It's mob mm -hmm. rule. It's, you know, like, if I'm gonna, if I could vote for myself to get lots of money, then yeah, I'm gonna do it. And that, right. that seems to have been the case lately, uh, you know, post-World War II, uh, that's been the trend in every democracy is towards more social services, more welfare. Um, you know, we, we talked about welfare and warfare state. Uh, warfare was certainly like peaked, um, you know, at World War II, though it's by no means like ended. Mm -hmm. um, but welfare has also increased significantly in every country, um, even as technological process gives us more prosperity. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So was Wilson then, I mean, he's effectively exporting democracy mm -hmm. via force in a way. I mean, <laughs> what was the impetus for that? Was this just, we had this model in our country and we just needed to replicate it? Yeah, so I've been studying him a little bit, and uh, and you have to recognize that he came out of an academic background. So he, mm. he was a college professor, and um, he was a professor at Princeton, and he had a gift for oratory. And this is something that I've noticed about sort of the 20th century, and especially with the advent of propaganda. It tends mm -hmm. to lift up people that can speak well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily the people with the best ideas or the best administrators or anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, and th those people are the ones that tend to come to come into power, Woodrow Wilson being one of the chief ones, um, Hitler, another one. He was mm -hmm. apparently this amazing speaker um, that, that could like hold the crowd spellbound for four hours at a time. So you know, um, that that has tended to be the case uh, in, in in democracies. Um, and, uh, you know, through during his professorship at, at Princeton, uh, he was able to, you know, basically like, uh, you know, hold these large lectures and things like that. And he became very popular and they decided to make him the college president when he was college president. Um, he had all sorts of conflicts. Um, the reason, by the way, why Princeton doesn't have a large graduate school is because of him. He 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 refused, even though he had like this large gift that he was he would be able to, um, uh, you know, to in order to start a graduate school. And it was like, no, we're not going to do that. And he had his own petty reasons for doing that. There was like a rival that would have been in charge of it, and he didn't want that mm -hmm. person to get power or whatever. But anyway, he was a very good speaker. So, uh, you know, the Democrat Party having run William Jennings Bryan for like a bunch of elections and, kept, and you know, they kept losing. They were like, OK, let's let's bring this guy and, and uh, or we, we need a better guy. And they they started looking. He was governor. Uh, he became governor of New Jersey, by the way, at that time. So he, mm. he, he sort of came onto the national scene because he was just so good at speaking. And that, that was his like sort of superpower. Um, so he had all of these ideas like going into office uh by the way he ran on not bringing the united states into a european war so mm. he completely lied but he he always had at his head like he wanted to be on the world stage so his ambitions like as he became uh you know president of princeton and then governor of new jersey and president of the united states and you know at that time us was still not quite a superpower right they were mm. they were you know on the world stage but he wanted to raise the prestige of the United States and raise his own profile. And he thought he could be that guy, uh, you know, like nowadays, like you're president of the United States, you're sort of seen as the leader of the free world. Back then, at least under his watch, U.S. was much more of an isolationist country and just sort of didn't involve themselves in anything else mm -hmm. um, other than some stuff in South America and stuff like that. So it, it was you know, they, they uh, like the European powers didn't really respect the U.S. quite as much, and he wanted to bring up that profile. Uh, so his involvement in World War One uh, was largely like sort of a lot of European powers, like sort of playing to his ego a little bit um, because they needed his money. The U.S. was rich. Uh, they were the nouveau rich of the international community. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, they needed the loans. France and England, in particular, uh, got a ton of loans from from the United States. Like like I said, they they squelched on some of that, mm -hmm. uh, and even Russia got some of that. Um, 
uh, you know, as, as part of the alliance. Uh, so, you know, he, he wanted to raise the profile of the United States. He wanted to raise his own profile. And, you know, his big idea was this League of Nations. And he basically gave away the store and let, let, let the French and the English dictate what the peace terms would be after they won the war because he wanted this League of Nations so bad. Mm. The irony, of course, was that the U.S. Senate rejected the League of Nations, so the United States wasn't a part of the League of Nations. And it, it ended up just being like a victor's club anyway, like none of the defeated nations actually got to join. So, um, you know, he... he yeah, he, he was this sort of like tragic comic uh, figure mm. who had this one superpower of being able to speak well, uh, but he wasn't intellectually deep and he had, uh, you know, he, he kind of like broke a lot of the traditions of the United States. Like, US, again, the U.S. was an isolationist country and known as that for mm. a long time. Right. And this had a very strong tradition, um, like going back to George Washington, like we're not going to be in European affairs. And he broke all of that is I think the first president to leave us soil during his presidency, no other president before mm. that did that because it was so important that they focus on domestic stuff instead of foreign policy. And he's really the first president to make foreign policy, like a big thing. Uh, and, you know, ever since then, it's been like a big part of every president's, um, uh, you know, like a legacy, basically, and, yeah. uh, it starting to intervene in foreign affairs, basically. So, um, you know, this was his way of uh, raising the U.S.'s and his own profile. And mm -hmm. that's essentially what happened uh, post-World War One. It was his way of enforcing, um, uh, you know, Pox Americana, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course it wasn't really that peaceful, but that, yeah. that was the idea. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. So the, the, the oratory being the gift that elevated a lot of these leaders, I, cause I'm, I watched that, uh, world war two in color on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen mm -hmm. that yet. It's a documentary. Oh yeah. Series. I've seen parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, do you remember seeing the scenes of Mussolini? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He is so like, it looks like almost a parody you would see on a, mm -hmm. a movie of a mm -hmm. dictator. Like he just makes these very extreme facial expressions and he, he's mm -hmm. very animated, let's say. Mm -hmm. But I wonder how much, because that was when television and radio was becoming uh, mm -hmm. the, the media, the dominant media of the world. So I wonder how mm -hmm. much of that, again, we talked earlier about how the technological realities kind of shape the outcome. Mm -hmm. So it's like mm -hmm. all of a sudden we have television and radio as the dominant modes mm -hmm. of media. So these guys that speak really well, or in Mussolini's case, um, <laughs> speak very animated, uh, mm -hmm. that contributes to their their success politically. Yeah, well, just as a public speaker, and I, I think you know this too, like if you're on stage and unless there's a camera trained on you and there's like a big screen behind you of your face or something like mm -hmm. that, you can't make subtle gestures in front of crap. You you right. have to be animated, right? Like, yeah. you, and every expression has to be very obvious to the crowd. Otherwise, they're just not going to get it. If it's on television, it's a little different. And like subtle movements are what you want on television. Yeah. But 
on stage in front of a crowd, you you have to make everything obvious. So I kind of understand where Mussolini's coming from and sort yeah. of being very animated. I think Hitler was very similar in that way too. Um, and he um, and you know essentially these guys were actors, right? And uh, yeah. Roosevelt too, to a large degree, right? Like he, his he, his ideas were super thin, and he 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 had like almost no mind of his own, and like he was heavily influential. But the thing that he had was his gift for oratory. He he would be able to go on radio and basically say something and it would just sound so comforting because he had this like amazing like uncle voice that yeah. like everyone could listen, listen to and just say, wow, this guy really cares and everything else. Uh, and that that was sort of what, what propelled him. And yeah, there, there is a technological aspect to it in that like radio, uh, especially around World War II was like a, a, a part of everyday life basically yeah. by then. Um, and of course, television, I think starting in the 60s became uh, an even bigger part of, uh, you know, how people saw things. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, this was again there because of the propaganda aspect of it. Uh, there was so much more at stake. And these tools, um, you know, got used because of this need to get the compliance of everybody else in a democracy. And, and you know, you don't necessarily need, a, need that as a monarch. So, like, monarchs weren't really actors, right? Like, they, they, right. they just did whatever they, it was everyone else that had to act to them. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, it, the dynamic is completely turned around in a democracy where, you know, you have to get the consent of the people. So you um, you have to have like fiery rhetoric or something yeah. to like incite their emotions. And it became like actually very, very emotional um, during that time and still is to a large degree. Right. Like the, the easiest way that politicians manipulate you is to get you to feel something. And yeah. if you do, then you're you're putty in their hand, basically. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's almost like, again, back to property when. Hmm. The democratically elected ruler has to sell you on something, right? He's trying to sell hmm. the war or sell the tax hmm. bond or the war bond or whatever it may be. So they have to just put on, they have to put some more sauce on it, right? They have to act <laughs> a little, um, mm -hmm. just to a greater degree. So that's interesting. And then the monarch though, it just doesn't have the same incentives, right? It's just, mm -hmm. it's his business. It's his property. <laughs> He's going to do whatever he wants. And to, you know, your opinion doesn't matter nearly as much because he's not uh, elected and he's not really violating your property. I mean, I guess he is to mm -hmm. some extent, but it's in a, mm -hmm. it's a different form of taxation, right. Than what we're accustomed mm -hmm. to. Um, that's all really interesting. And then, so. Yeah, I, I'm, I, well, can I point out something? Yeah, uh, Cause you, you just triggered a thought. Um, I think CEOs are kind of walking down that same path right now, right? Like mm. it used to be that no one, no one cares, right? Like you, you, you have people performing for CEOs because they, they, they want, you know, a prestigious job or their account yeah. or something like that. Um, but you know, like as these companies become much more public and zombie companies or whatever, mm -hmm. they're, they're having to become more performers, right? Like mm -hmm. having to yeah. have charm and like public persona and stuff like that. So. I, I wonder if like, uh, you know, as you become more public, you just sort of have to go down that direction where, yeah. you know, you don't have great operators at CEO positions as much as you have great actors, right? Like people right. that can perform right, right. certain things. 
Um, and that that seems to be the direction we're going. I mean, you still have to have confidence, but um, you know, I mean, it's they're becoming kind of politician-y. Right. No. And again, taking it back to property, like the only way a zombie company can exist, which again, we'll just, I mean, I guess define a zombie company. It's the way I, I guess the way I define it is a company that's generating losses. It's not a mm. profitable company ostensibly, mm. but it is uh, subsidized by tax revenues, right? So they're, mm -hmm. It's a company that would not exist absent the coercion of taxation and or inflation. So they're benefiting yeah. from suckling at the teat of the state effectively. Mm -hmm. And so again, they where private property gets blurred into public property, they benefit mm -hmm. from that. So then they become mm -hmm. more disingenuous or deceptive, maybe in their leadership role. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a really interesting dynamic i'd love to parse that out some more <laughs> yeah i mean the the person that comes to mind immediately is elon musk right because mm. he he's uh he's performing for the public now mm -hmm. right like instead yeah. of sort of just um you know like in a sense because tesla is such a public stock and he knows that government regulatory stuff is very important and of yes. course he's been getting enormous subsidies through yes. green energy and all that right. stuff so th this has become a big part of his job yeah. uh you know and this is the difference between a monarch and a politician it, it occurs to me that in a monarchy you don't really have politicians yeah in a democracy exactly. you have politicians yes. who are all sort of like acting in order to get yes. your consent so um you know they, there there's definitely something to the politicization yes. of companies that's happening right now yeah and i mean that's a very important point that the very existence of politics as a profession mm. is premised on property being stolen effectively because again mm. in, in a monarchy <laughs> where it's just like this is mine that's yours the end yeah. there's no no parading or acting that needs to go on to try and deceive you into something because the lines are just very clear. Whereas in mm. the democratic model, this whole, there's just such a blurring, you know, and it, it's, I'm just very, this is a, this, this is occurring to me kind of as we've gone through this conversation, but I think Hoppe has just done such an excellent job of, of spelling this out. Um, what then, so where I, we were going to talk a little bit about, tariffs and taxes mm. how are how is that related to this ordeal i assume tariffs became more uh of a more of a substantial issue as we started to globalize post mm. maybe during and post world war one world war two well so the 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 transition i think is uh is interesting because early on in the us's history um, you know, federal government was funded almost entirely by customs duties, tariffs, mm -hmm. right? Like it mm -hmm. was, you know, whatever, and that that made sense because they controlled the borders, and you know, whatever was coming into the United States, yep. they would just, you know, tax. Um, you know, the Merchant Marine was one of the first, you know, organizations in the uh, in the federal government, and they were collecting duties basically. Mm -hmm. that th this was the way in which. Um, you know you you got going in a democracy and that th those are some of the first taxes uh what ended up happening is uh 
you know, as you had more democracies, uh, you know, this became kind of a model. Like uh, under a monarchy, you, you know, you have essentially justification to tax almost anything. Of course, like democracies now tax whatever, right, right, right. right. Like, yeah, uh, but uh, you know, it, it used to be that you know king would tax uh, you know commerce at a certain place or something to that effect. Uh, but sales taxes were kind of unknown, right? Like for mm. uh, for a long time. Uh, and it was really only sort of like, um, uh, you know, like within certain like markets or whatever that you, that you would be able to impose those. Uh, the thing about uh, democracies that, uh, you know, with tariffs in particular is uh, at least pre-fiat money, this was the major way to tax. And uh, and what what this does is it it, it decreases productivity because you don't have as many trade partners and you don't have as many options. So if you have two countries that have tariffs um, and in a and this could happen in a monarchy, but I think it's exacerbated in a democracy with tariffs because you have domestic producers who are going to be lobbying the government mm -hmm. and they um, and because they have sort of like a stake in it, they they can convincingly argue, OK, you should raise the tariffs for this. Um, so that we're protected as a constituency. And this is part of this whole welfare discussion that we're talking mm -hmm. about is you essentially end up subsidizing certain things, uh, you know, and it's not necessarily the most e efficient and that sort of impinges on prosperity. Um, so when you have a bunch of uh, democracies without fiat money, this, this tends to be it. And uh, it turns out that that was actually the case in a, in a lot of places uh, pre-World War II, and it caused all sorts of animosity um, and a, a lot of democratic places, um, you know, U.S. being a chief one, mm -hmm. uh, you know, had had a lot of that. Um, and England was actually uh, one of the few that didn't have tariffs, and they they got to be very rich as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And, right. you know, to be, to be fair, it wasn't because they were all like, you know, Adam Smith laissez-faire economics or whatever. It was because yeah. they had all these colonies and they they needed, you know, trading partners for those and uh, they they were trying to make it more efficient and so on. So yeah. there, there was some selfish reasoning to to do that. But when you when you have more trading partners and less tariffs, um, you know, it, it does end up with more prosperity, but because democracies tend to sort of protect their own and mm. you, your constituency is within your borders. Um, it, it reduces the prosperity of the entire world in a sense. Um, now, that's not to say that, you know, authoritarian governments or monarchies or whatever don't don't do the same thing. They, they yeah. certainly can. Um, and, you know, uh, like, you know, U.S.'s, uh, you know, tariff war with China, I think, uh, you know, is, is sort of evidence that that it can it can definitely happen with, you know, non-democratic countries as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like. It, there, there is that element of it uh, in absence of fiat money. Uh, mm. But once you get fiat money, then you can just sort of tax your populace and um, not have to do tariffs. And, you know, th this is where we get um, get that. And th this, this is something that I, I honestly think about under a Bitcoin standard. I think you start seeing more tariffs again, right? Like, mm. I, I think you do start seeing that as becoming a bigger part of, uh, you know, uh, nation's tax arsenal or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not so sure it's that terrible. Um, 
because uh, certainly under the gold standard, there were all sorts of uh, tariffs, but people managed to prosper. Um, but it is sort of like a lesser evil than, you know, fiat money, certainly. But yeah. it, it is there and it, it is something that I think democracies are maybe a little bit more susceptible to than monarchies. Mm. Yeah, so it's because I guess democracies are controlling larger perimeters, so larger borders mm-hmm. that they're, um, I guess they tend to impose higher tariffs than a monarchy where monarchy, monarchies would be inherently more decentralized. Well, so well, so for a democracy, you have to listen to your constituents, right? Mm-hmm. The, the people that um, in, instead, uh, and you know, they they tend to have an, have a larger voice than say the rest of the public that might benefit from the yeah. imports or whatever. Um, and, and a monarch can kind of see that and just say no. Um, yeah. Whereas in a democracy, it's it's much harder to say no and. You know, uh, you know, you you have fluctuating tariffs and things like that yeah. because, uh, you know, depending on who's in power. So, um, you know, that that is a part of the tax base of uh, democracy, because uh, like, it's the easiest one to impose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the easiest one by far is fiat money, right? Like just print it, print as yeah, much as possible. Sure. Yeah. But the second easiest, I think, is tariffs because yeah. it doesn't come from your citizens, and you can at least make that argument. Right. Um, and uh, and th- this is one where, um, you know, democracies are particularly susceptible um, and, you know, because of the property boundaries being very blurred, yeah. um, you tend to look for, you know, some uh, like that is kind of a clear property boundary and a blurred property boundary thing is, you know, getting money from coming from the outside the country. Yeah. 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 So then the it so this is the lobbying mechanism is just more effective mm-hmm. inside of a democracy then so yeah can put up higher walls effectively because uh stakeholders inside the country are trying to protect their own interests from or protect their own markets from outsiders yeah yeah and they um they usually demand some sort of subsidies uh, of some kind if the tariffs are not there. Um, and this is where you get sort of corporate wel- welfare is yeah. that in order to support U.S. car manufacturers, for example, um, you know, like to be competitive with foreign autos, you know, you, you end up subsidizing them significantly. And, then, mm. and you know, that you, you, you get uh, weird incentives like that where um, tariffs are essentially uh, you know, substituted with corporate welfare, and that mm. that that's sort of like the path that you you end up going down with, with yeah. fiat money, uh, where you know it might reverse a little bit. Maybe we go to tariffs, and then we, uh, you know, we reduce the state enough that tariffs are necessary. I don't know. So that's an interesting that's, thought. That's, that uh, tariffs would become a larger component of tax revenue under a Bitcoin standard because aren't mm-hmm. I mean typically tariffs would kind of be quid pro quo right like if you enforce yeah. a tariff on me i'm probably going to enforce one back on you and there's this kind of mm-hmm. game of escalation do you think then mm-hmm. that bitcoin standard could actually increase the protectionism and divisiveness among nations in that way yeah i think early on definitely um yeah. i i can definitely see that because uh, governments are going to be starving for revenue yeah. um, and uh, and they're they're going to need it and this is uh, obvious this one. is the yeah. obvious easy one yeah. uh this is a very easy win 
Um, because essentially you, you say, well, we're not taxing you. We're of course, your goods are going to be more expensive. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but it's not as obvious that it's uh, it's hurting the people on the inside. Um, so you know, in a democracy, especially, I think I, I think you see, you know, um, certain places instead of like ethanol uh, subsidies in Iowa, for example, um, yeah. you start taxing, you know, imported ethanol or something, something to that right. effect uh, as a way to equalize. They amount to the same thing. Uh, but it's it's less of a pernicious tax um, like that's over everybody that's yeah. subs subsidizing it. Instead, it's it's the people that are using ethanol that are subsidizing it. And in which case they, they you know, um, hopefully will lobby and um, show that uh, they're doing it more efficiently and so on. It, it's it's hard to. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's basically the pattern that corporate welfare goes is that mm. it turns from direct subsidization to some sort of tariff. Yeah. Yeah. It's particularly pernicious because the tariff is actually destroying the division of labor and wealth creation. Right. So mm. if that game just keeps escalating upward, everyone suffers effectively. Um, yeah, it does, but it's, it's not quite as bad as corporate welfare. Cause mm. you specifically choose like a winner and a loser with corporate welfare, mm. but at least you have to do it at sort of like the industry level with the tariffs. Right, so right, right. in a sense, I would argue that tariffs are better, uh, than this sort of fiat, uh, based, right. uh, subsidization of everything. Um, I mean, no tariff I think is, is best because then yeah. you have more trading partners and, um, you know, each each country does, or e each person in each country does what they do best. Uh, but you know, like it's weird because I, I have different views on this. Right uh -huh. under a fiat standard, I actually think tariffs are good. Under a yeah. uh, Bitcoin standard, I think uh, tariffs are bad. Um, and that this this can be kind of a weird thing. But you know, be, uh, under a fiat standard, what at what. Um, ends up happening is, uh, you know, you, you do subsidize like specific companies instead of tariffs. So yeah, right, right, right. tariffs and like, at least like the best companies in your own country survive instead of a specific company that's politically connected. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So tariffs are better than inflation, mm -hmm. especially on the other side of inflation being corporate welfare, zombie companies, mm -hmm. winners and losers and all that, but it's still not ideal, right. From, from an economic yeah purely economic standpoint. Uh, what, so you, that two point tariffs are an obvious next step. Governments are going to be starving mm. for revenue. Inflation mm. gets closed out as a revenue option as a mm. consequence of Bitcoin over time, theoretically, mm. largely. Um, would real estate be next? Like governments just taxing, you know, commercial and residential real estate more heavily? Yeah, that that would be interesting. I mean, they they do to a large extent already. I think a lot of local government expenditure is funded by real estate taxes. Um, I, I'm sure that's true all over the uh, all over the world. Um, and it's uh, I, I think uh, Rothbard says it's one of the easiest things to tax because it doesn't move. That's right. <laughs> like you can't you know conceal exactly it, yeah. where it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very easy to tax. So uh, it, it is taxed to a large extent already. Um, 
I think consumption taxes are probably a little bit easier, um, mm. but you know it's it's hard to like sales tax is probably a, a much easier tax than something like an income tax because mm -hmm. it's hard to know how much a person is earning unless you have a CBDC or something like that. Right. Um, so. Yeah, I, um, real estate is property, uh, so you you can tax it, um, and you know I, I'm sure they'll lean on it a little more. Um, I I would like to see the federal government sell off a lot of the land that it owns because it doesn't do anything with it. Right, it, like it, there's just so much of it yeah. that could probably be put into much better private use, but there's this weird public ownership of this land that, that yeah. that's just odd. And you know, I I think the U.S. could actually like pay off a lot, uh, like keep, um, you know, we we have way too many government employees, for example, right? right. Um, so a way in which you can do that is sell off public land and make sure that they get what was promised to them, right? If they have a pension or whatever, yeah. like sort of like sunset them, but don't hire any new ones. Yeah. That way, you can have a smoother transition to a Bitcoin standard. By using, uh, you know, like land as funding or something to that effect, um, and I, I, I mean, there's literally like probably trillions of dollars in real estate value that uh, the U.S. government owns that that could probably be used for much better purposes and cause a lot more prosperity instead of just sort of sitting there out, uh, sitting out there as like wasteland for, yeah, I don't know, nuclear waste or something like that yeah do you think that 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 makes sense too that um the ascent of bitcoin could actually cause governments to start to sell off some of their public lands as you to your point mm -hmm. they're starving for revenue you, you see that happening as well yeah i hope so um i i, I can't see uh, like so i i expect other bitcoin standard for the private sector to be thriving because yes. you can save you can start new businesses and stuff yeah. like that so there's going to be a demand for stuff like land uh, that the government owns and sort of putting it into private hands so that they can fund whatever it is that they want um, mm. seems like a natural sort of high time preference thing a government might do. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if it without the spigot of money printing, that that seems like a fairly good revenue source. Now, you can, of course, tax real estate, but that's, you know, uh, that's another tax. People mm -hmm. usually hate taxes and that that's going to cause an uproar. But you, if you can sort of like keep it going by selling some land and or even leasing the land or, you know, yeah. like making better use of the resources that the government has, you know, I, I think ultimately it, it ends with a lot more prosperity because more people will be able to do certain things. Maybe you know, uh, they start grazing lions in like, uh, you know, some of the land or something yeah. and we start, you know, doing something interesting with lions. I don't know. Like there, there's all sorts of ways in which you can use land that, um, that, you know, we're, we're not, you, we're not really exploring because, you know, uh, entrepreneurship is expensive and, you know, there isn't as much available as there should be because the federal government just kind of owns it. So, yeah. um, but that's not, and that's not just land, right? There's a lot of other stuff that the yeah. federal government owns um, that they could be selling that they aren't. Well, that's a really potentially positive outcome, in my opinion, just because, again, you getting that land back into the hands of private owners sees that it's put to its highest and best economic use. Whereas right now, mm. to your point, it sits there, you know, idle more or less. Um, so it sounds like 
yeah, again, this is maybe another aspect of Bitcoin kind of pushing back on government in a way, putting government back mm. to its roots of like mm. control the borders, you know, mm-hmm. guard the land. You can tax the real estate, but you're not going to have inflation mm. as a revenue source. Mm-hmm. Sales tax is interesting because it gets murky, right? Depends on what you're buying and where you're buying it from. If you're buying just mm-hmm. digital stuff in a digital marketplace, I think on a Bitcoin standard, that would be pretty hard to tax. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're buying stuff at the local grocery store, maybe that's a little bit easier. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's a really interesting way uh, to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, I, I, there's one. We went through chapter one of Democracy, the mm-hmm. God that Failed here. And I think the the final paragraph is so powerful. I just wanted to read it out. Hoppe says, ultimately, the course of human history is determined by ideas, whether they are true or false. Just as kings could not exercise their rule unless public opinion accepted their rule as legitimate, so democratic rulers are equally dependent on public opinion to sustain their political power. It is public opinion, therefore, that must change if we are to prevent the process of de-civilization from running its full course. Mm. And just as monarchy was once accepted as legitimate, but is today considered to be an unthinkable solution to the current social crisis, it is not inconceivable that the idea of democratic rule might someday be regarded as morally illegitimate and politically unthinkable. Mm. Such a delegitimation is a necessary precondition to avoiding ultimate social catastrophe. It is not government, monarchical or democratic, that is the source of human civilization and social peace, but private property and the recognition and defense of private property rights, contractualism, and individual responsibility. Hmm. Very powerful. This reminds me of the end of human action, actually, where Mises says that you know, for most tools, the most useful tool is going to win out in the marketplace. But when it comes to the ideology or social system that we create for ourselves, that we organize ourselves within, that's not the case, right? It is very much decided in the court of public opinion. And so this, this along with that quote from H.G. Wells, that Education is a race between civiliza- um, civilization, sorry, is a race between mm-hmm. education and catastrophe. These are like my two lightning bolt moments where I'm like, holy cow, we really have to educate people about the importance of Bitcoin and private property more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, checks and balances, at least, if not minimization of government. Mm-hmm. Um and it just seems like we've strayed so far, you know? It's incredible mm. that we sit here in this seat of arrogance thinking we're, you know, modern geniuses compared to our, our ancestors. But in fact, we've lost our way in so many respects. Yeah, and democracy has sort of like become a god, right? Like it, mm. it, it's sort of taken as an intrinsically good thing. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that's the case. I, I think we've shown uh, over, uh, you know, two podcasts and six hours or something like that, mm-hmm. that it's, uh, there, there are certain incentives in democracy that are completely antithetical to natural law. Uh, and it does sort of like allow for 
um, you know, mob rule, uh, more war, fiat, um, fiat money, welfare state, uh, all, all sorts of things that I, I think we would see as kind of bad. Uh, and the unfortunate reality is that, you know, democracy uh, has a lot of flaws and it very well may be like what Hoppe says, that we may someday look back on it and say, how could anyone have done a democracy? Because right. it is clearly, uh, you know, like draws very murky boundaries between public and private property, um, thus, you know, uh, violating a lot of natural law, uh, which, you know, uh, hopefully is at least internal to most people. So, um, yeah, in a sense, like, uh, we, we've been propagandized about democracy, yeah. I think, uh, and we're all sort of have uh, a sense that it, it's and it, it's intrinsically good when it's really not. There, there are flaws with it, uh, especially mm -hmm. with the incentive systems around it. Um, but that said, like, I don't, I don't know if, if uh, you know, something better will be tried necessarily. I think, uh, you know, a very limited government or even something like anarcho-capitalism as, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is Hapa's preference. I, I don't know if that's going to come about anytime soon. Um, but in the meantime, I think we need to be aware of the cognitive biases that we might have towards democracy because of what we've been propagandized with mm -hmm. and recognize its realities that it is very flawed and that there are sort of tendencies towards fiat money, the welfare warfare state, and particularly in the absence of God uh, towards just un unimaginable evil um, that is possible within, uh, within this structure because it, it can very easily lead to something like communism. So, mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Excellent points. Um, I'm reminded of, I don't know if you ever saw this on Twitter, but there was this sequence of local news anchors and they were all re <laughs> reciting the same trope. They were like, it's very dangerous mm -hmm. for our democracy. And they were, mm -hmm. there was a whole spiel, but they were word for uh -huh. word repeating one another. Uh -huh. The same exact thing. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, as we've touched on here, this is, these ideologies wrap themselves in this moralistic camouflage that protects mm -hmm. them in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. So what, how do we pierce that veil? Like what, mm -hmm. how, because it, if you walked out, I'd say into anywhere in the U S and you approached mm -hmm. someone and said, democracy is a scam. I mean, <laughs> I would think they would think you are crazy, right? Or, mm -hmm some kind of crazy anarcho-capitalist or whatever, but mm -hmm. how can we, because this is not an unsophisticated argument. Like this is pretty mm -hmm. high brass intellectual argument to some mm -hmm. extent. I mean, you need to understand time preference and these other factors. Mm -hmm. How can we pierce that veil of moralistic camouflage that democracy is wrapped in? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I suspect that we have to use the same tools of propaganda that have been used on mm. us to make us believe that democracy is this amazing thing. Um, I mean, there, there are people that have read this book and have started, uh, you know, talking about it as, okay, it's democracy isn't all that. Um, 
you know, I, I, I don't know. There, there needs to be better rhetoric, better memes, better mm. uh, ways of looking at it. Um, I, I do suspect that younger people are much more open to that idea. And, you know, particularly in places uh, uh, on the internet that are not frequented by polite people like 4chan, um, you know, mm -hmm. this sort of idea is actually like, yeah, it's obvious that democracy is not all bad and monarchies are probably better and so on. Um, but, you know, this is uh, this is kind of how things change. Uh, it's not obvious to us now that, uh, you know, democracy is uh, is, you know, has all these flaws. Uh, but, you know, maybe 50 years from now, it will be obvious um, and, you know, people will try something better based on, you know, the the flaws that it has, um, hopefully from a priority thinking, right? Like from rationalistic yeah. Yeah. perspective of, okay, what, what are the things that we're optimizing for? Well, it uh, clearly does not optimize for these things. So therefore, let's try something that will optimize for these things. Um, and that's uh, that. That's where I think we have to we have to go. I think Bitcoin brings about um, uh, you know something better, even within a democracy or mon monarchical framework. Mm -hmm. um, it just has that sort of like purifying element to it mm -hmm. uh, because it makes money honest and it takes away this uh, great evil called fiat money that's used to oppress people by every government. <clears throat> so. Um, that's my hope, and uh, and you know we'll we'll see you know exactly how that will work. Uh, but I I suspect that if you're going to convince people that democracy isn't all that, it has to start with the young people, and it's going to mm. take at least a generation. Well said. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me on this. Um, I think this is extremely important material. And I hope this helps nudge the universe, uh, hopefully a little bit away from democracy as the dominant future <laughs> of the 21st century. No, I would love for it to be liberty and not democracy, because that's ultimately what it's about. Amen to that. All right. Thank you so much.